For our scripture reading this afternoon, we turn to Romans 7. We're going to read the verses 7 to 25. That's the end of the chapter. Fairly familiar words concerning the law of God and our inability to maintain, to keep what it is that God commands us to do, certainly to the degree that the Lord requires it. And then we'll confess together the three question and answers from Lord's Day 44. Lord's Day 44 is certainly about the 10th commandment, which is where we are in our study of the commandments, but it also summarizes, as the 10th commandment does, all of the commandments, and it challenges us to see ourselves in the light of those commandments. So we'll confess together the answer to those three questions. But first, Romans 7, beginning at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive, apart from law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, and in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, then to Lord's Day 44. Lord's Day 44, pages 250-251 or 893. Three question and answers, 113, 14, and 15. The Tenth Commandment, of course, is do not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, his wife, his manservant or maidservant, ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So then what is God's will for you in the Tenth Commandment? That not even the slightest desire or thought, contrary to any one of God's commandments, should ever arise in our hearts. 
Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some, of God's commandments. Since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? First, so that all our life long we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. As the church does believe. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was John Lennon who challenged us to imagine there's no heaven. And as foolish as it was then, and as foolish as it is now, maybe it would help for a moment if we just took his advice, or at least thought about what it would mean if we took his advice. That is, what would happen if this life, if these few days upon this marble in space were all that we had? That's it. Nothing more. Nothing after. Nothing better. Just the few days of this life. Indeed, just today. You could only know that today was given you. Now what would happen if you adopted that mentality if you allowed that thought to percolate through the rest of your experience and attitude and activities. That's probably too hard or too grand a thought to capture in a few moments this Sunday afternoon. So let's try to reduce this concept a little to see if that might help. So instead of saying, imagine there's no heaven, let's say, imagine there is no graduation from school or imagine there's no retirement or imagine there are no vacations, no weekends. Imagine that all of those things that we look forward to are gone. Do you imagine that this world would be a better place or a worse place if that were the case? Do you think going to school would be something you would look forward to if you could never leave? Do you think work would be as enjoyable if it was this endless drudgery ending only in death? My guess is that it would not. That at some point you would become rather discouraged by the endless Sisyphean effort that results in no positive outcome. And what then would be your response to this monotony to this being a hamster in a wheel running daily and getting nowhere well i suppose there would be all sorts of responses some people might try desperately 
to smile and be cheerful and pretend that life is grand, all the while hiding the dark despair within their hearts. Others might just give up and drop out of civil society to live a different kind of despair. Others might medicate or medicate themselves rather with drugs and drink just to get through their day, joining Pink Floyd in singing I'm comfortably numb. Still others might listen to the most outlandish lies of false prophets that tell them that there is a better life out there and that it can be enjoyed for the low monthly fee of nine ninety nine. Whatever the response is, I'm guessing that if you take away our future, our hope, our confidence in the meaningfulness of this life, life doesn't get better, it gets much, much worse. In fact, you could give everyone buckets of money, the best homes, the nicest cars, every technological advancement in the world. You could make everyone's life like Truman Burbank in The Truman Show, Jim Carrey's character in The Truman Show, and people would still despair. You'd find yourself laying in bed at night asking, what's the point? And yet that all changes, doesn't it, when there's a little bit of hope. We're willing to study for school if there's a benefit to the end. Willing to work long hours as we start up our business because we know there'll be a fruit uh, in time that we can enjoy. Just think of professional athletes and how much they sacrifice to maybe win a gold medal. It's amazing what we will do when there's a little bit of hope, a little bit of promise, a little bit of joy in our lives. When we have a goal, a good, hopeful, beautiful, blessed goal, we can endure a great deal when we have such a thing. That's the first lesson to learn in this example. But the second is that you need the right goal. Because if you pick the wrong one, Eventually you realize that many of the supposed blessings we've pursued aren't blessings at all. Indeed, we find ourselves all the more discouraged and disappointed because we're chasing a ghost or a mist or an empty, meaningless blessing. We can get straight A's in school only to discover that our primacy in this little small bubble of a class that we belong to doesn't really translate to the big bad world. We can spend our years toiling away at our business thinking that we will be financially set for life only to discover that being wealthy isn't all that it's cracked up to be. We look at those around us, especially those who took a different path, and we think to ourselves, you know, I wish I'd been them. Because we set the wrong goal, we set the wrong focus, we went down the wrong path. And it's good that we should realize that, not because of the weariness that it can cause, but because it helps us see that there is a need for a satisfying goal, a more positive end, one that can be achieved and that will fill our hearts with what it is that we desire. So we need something to look forward to. That's the point in all of this. But it has to be solid. It has to be certain. It has to be meaningful, which is what the Tenth Commandment gives us. Although I don't always think we see it that way. The Tenth Commandment, as we've already noted, is about coveting. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, land, servants. The idea here is is that uh, you, you cannot want something that isn't yours. So coveting is something that happens only in the heart. It's not something that necessarily translates into action. When it does, 
then it's one of the other commandments. So if you covet somebody's money and then you take it, that's stealing. Now you've broken the eighth commandment. If you covet somebody's wife and then you, and then you act with them in an inappropriate or an unfaithful way, then you've broken the seventh commandment. So the seventh, the sixth, if on and on we could go demonstrating how when you take the action, you break another commandment. But in the tenth, when you want to sin, you've broken the tenth commandment. Wanting, that's all this commandment is about. It's not about doing anything. It's about what lives in the deepest recesses of your heart. It looks to your desires, your motives, the unseen, the often unexpressed thoughts that flit through your brain in any given day that are sinful. And it says that's wrong. You may not think those things. You may not feel those things. You may not desire those things. And so the Tenth Commandment really in many respects is one of the more devastating of them all. Because it doesn't just come to us and say, how have you lived your life? It says, what's living in you? Are you this passionate? Are you this committed? Are you this dedicated to living for the Lord. Listen again to what the Catechism says. That not even the slightest desire or thought, contrary to any one of God's commandments, should ever arise in our hearts. And rather with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. Does that describe you? Do you hate sin and delight in righteousness? Are you so committed to the Lord that not even a single thought enters your brain? No impure motive comes into your heart? It's not just were you nice to your brother or sister? Did you share your toys with them when mom or dad said you have to share? The question is, did you want to? Were you happy to do it? Or did you do it only because you had to? What lives deep within us? The thing that nobody else but God can see. Do you love God? Do you live for God this much? We should. We should because this is exactly how God created us. We might think to ourselves that the catechism is being unfair, setting too high a standard for us, but the truth is this was what we were made to do. When you go back to the beginning and you go back to the creation of man and woman in the Garden of Eden, you see God making two people so totally devoted to Him that no ill thought comes into their mind. No desire or motive for sin ever creeps into their, into their heart. They were so completely, passionately devoted to living for the Lord that they had to be led astray when the serpent came and invited them to think ill of the Lord. But we were created to live in loving devotion. Indeed, that's why we can speak of a civil society within our world. That's why we can speak of our fellow men still doing some good things. Our fellow men do some very lovely things. We have neighbors and co-workers who are kind and, and, and genuine and sincere and honest and all sorts of lovely things and sometimes even put fellow members in the church to shame. 
And why is that? Why do we see so often within our society, why do we see these reminders of the kind of people that we should all be? The answer is because this is the way we were created. This echo of God's image, this echo of our goodness, this echo of our identity as those created by God remains in us to some degree, some greater and some lesser. But there still is always this reminder that we were made for better things. And, and, and as the people of God, as the church of Jesus Christ, we have even less reason to dismiss or turn away from this high standard of living. Are you this passionate for the Lord? Are you this committed to living for Christ? You should be because you're re- created to be. But as the church of Jesus Christ, we really should be because we've been redeemed to be. Jesus Christ came not only to wash away our sins, thank the Lord that He did, but He came also to lift us out of the pit of despair. On Pentecost Sunday, He poured out His Spirit on us, and by His Spirit's presence within our lives, we are transformed and made new so that we might live for the Lord. Think of what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3 about being born again. That new birth, that new life, that's an untainted by sin life. That is a life devoted to living for the Lord. When the Holy Spirit works in us a desire to live for the Lord, it's not a partial desire, it's not an impure desire, it is an entirely devoted desire to the Lord. So we were created to live in this kind of devotion to our God. We have been redeemed to live in this kind of devotion to our God. And yet, do we live in this kind of devotion to our God? Maybe we should ask if, if this is even our expectation because sometimes it's because it's so high a bar and because we know we can't get over it that we just pretend like the bar doesn't exist. That is, what we do is we change the faith. We change what Christianity is about. We change what it means to be a Christian. We stop expecting to live in total and radical devotion to God in Jesus Christ and instead we assume that a little bit of goodness here and there, a little bit of distinctively Christian action, that's enough. If we profess our faith, if we go to church, etc., etc., that's really what distinguishes us as Christians, we turn our spirituality into this legalism of do this, don't do that. I've done the right thing. I haven't done the bad thing. But that's not what the Lord wants of us. That's not what He created us for or redeemed us for. And our expectation for what it means to be a Christian ought to be the higher. We ought to strive for perfection. That is, we should expect that we and our children and our friends and family within the church will live a total and unrelenting love with a total and unrelenting love for our God that expresses itself passionately in everything we do. That should be our goal. Every one of us should have that as a goal as believers. We should have that as a goal for ourselves, for our children, for our friends and family, for everyone around us. We need to reset our expectation for the Christian life. It is not be a little bit better. It is radically to be radically devoted to living to the Lord in total and unrelenting purity. Even knowing you can't. 
Because we can't, can we? Why can't we live this way? Why don't we live this way? I think sometimes it's because it is so discouraging to hear. If we constantly set the bar at the highest possible level, if you have to be this tall in order to enter into eternity sort of thing, and you're constantly measuring way down at the bottom, then you begin to think to yourself, what's the point? Which is what we struggle with when it comes to the Christian life. We do, with Paul, acknowledge that the good that we want to do, we don't do, and the evil that we don't want to do, that we do. We do struggle in our own lives with pride and with humility and with tempers and with language and and with lust and with with greed and, and all of these wicked things that we know are wrong. And they just so easily and carelessly enter into our hearts and minds. It doesn't take anything for us to fall into the pit of sin all over again. Even though the last time we did this, we swore up and down that we would never do it again, here we find ourselves back into this pit of despair. And so it's easier for us to stay in the pit and to just wallow in it and tell ourselves, I'm not perfect, but I am forgiven. That is, in order to make ourselves less discouraged, tell ourselves that God requires less of us. But what, if, but what if every time we get out of the pit of despair, every time we strive to climb into the way of righteousness, what if every time we renew our commitment to living before, what if every time we strive for perfection, even in the light of our own failings and flaws, we find ourselves encouraged instead of discouraged? Oh, I know there is a great deal of discouragement available to us here and certainly in the Tenth Commandment. The Catechism admits as much, doesn't it, when it says in question and answer 114 that in this life even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience. The Catechism's not unreasonable. It knows the circumstance we're in. It says you have to reach to this level, but none of you ever will. Even the holiest, and that's not me, and that's probably not you, have a small beginning a small beginning think of that now just let that really just let that work its way through your heart and because we have this problem with pride people of god we really do and we think that we're well we're not we're not great but we're not bad i'm a pretty good spouse i'm a pretty good parent i'm a pretty good son or daughter i'm a pretty good man or woman i'm a pretty good preacher the lord says no you're not not even close small beginning out of a hundred you score a two good for you we tend to think that we score much higher don't we that's the problem with our pride our pride tells us that we are so much better but the word of god comes to us and says you're not and precisely because our pride needs to be crucified our pride needs to be crucified It gets us into trouble. It makes our lives miserable. It makes the lives of other people miserable. Our pride is what allows us to judge other people. To look down our noses at others and to say, I'm better than they are and that person's no good. Well, no, they might be a 1.7, but you're just a 2, so what are you doing looking down at them? And the truth is, our pride prevents us from admitting 
the ugly truth of our need for grace. We don't want to admit we need help. We don't want to admit that we need mercy. We don't want to admit that we need forgiveness. Oh, in some general theoretical sense, yes, very much so. I mean, we all need Jesus, of course we do. But in very specific ways, our pride prevents us from saying, help. Help in my marriage. Help in my addiction. Help in my life. Help in my work. Help in my everything. And why can't we say help? Why are we willing to be enslaved and enchained by sin? Why are we willing to be dragged away into the misery and the pit of sins instead of saying help? Instead of crying out to somebody, instead of saying to our spouse or to our friend or to our pastor or to our elder, I need help. Why is it when we get family visits and the elders say, everything going good here? Yeah, well, everything's great. Why don't we say, ah, we need help? Because the truth is, we think we're better than we are. And we can handle it. And we're okay. But we can't. Our being judgmental and our unwillingness to repent is itself a demonstration of this. They're two sides of the same coin. Two sins expressing the same spirit. A spirit that doesn't believe that we need Christ as much as we do. And for that, we ought to grieve. We ought to recognize our folly. We ought to humble ourselves before the Lord. We ought to say, Christ, help me to see how much I need you. And in that moment, we ought to be encouraged because that's the flower in the manure pile. There is a beginning. It's a small beginning, as the catechism reminds us with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to not only some of God's command, not only, to all rather, not only some of God's commandments. That's the small beginning of obedience that even the holiest among us has. But it's a small beginning. You know that dead people don't have a small beginning, right? Dead people don't begin anything. But those who are alive produce a fruit. A bruised fruit, a disfigured fruit, an ugly fruit, but a fruit. When I used to work at the nursery in St. Catharines at Backers, then when we went to count rosebuds after we had budded all these rose bushes, you had to take off these little rubber uh, ties and you had to look at the bud, and the bud could be as black as night. But if there was one little dot of green in it, it was alive. And that can be us, can it? That can be each one of us. It can be a lot of black and one little dot of life. But that small beginning is life. It is a life worked in us by the power of the the Spirit of God. It is a life that is entirely owing to His grace and goodness in our hearts and in our lives. And it's a life that is passionate about living for the Lord and about His will. Notice that. That small beginning desires to live according to all not some of god's commandments we don't pick and choose we don't say i want to live part of my life for the lord we want to live every part of our lives for the lord and not only do we want to live every part we want to live according to each one of the commandments we don't pick and choose and say well i'll take nine or seven or eight out of ten and i will leave the rest behind no we desire to live for the lord And it grieves us when we don't. 
which is really good. Really good. Think about it. Every time we read the Ten Commandments, every time we get to the end, and you get to the tenth, and that tenth says, now, you couldn't do any of these things. You're not allowed to do any of these things. And you may not even want to. Then if you're like me, then you have to admit that's not me because I, I tell you, I want to sin. I got desires and, 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 and ideas and thoughts that are disobedient to God. I can't deny it. And then it cuts my heart as it ought to cut yours to hear God say that is condemnable. That is wrong. That is sin. And when you grieve, you ought to rejoice. Because that, the pain of that cut testifies that you are alive in Jesus Christ. And that God has begun a work in you that He's going to bring to a glorious conclusion. Be encouraged. Yes, even when you grieve over your sin, even when it weighs your heart down, even when you cry out for mercy to God and can't believe the Lord would forgive you again, be encouraged because you're alive. And you're on a path that leads to perfection. That's what the catechism speaks of, doesn't it? That's where the catechism brings us. That's where the law of God brings us, the catechism says. Question and answer 115. If we're all just being reminded of our sin every time we read the Ten Commandments, what's the point? Why, why do we, why does God, is God so mean? That's sometimes what you hear. That's sometimes how people perceive the Christian life. They understand the, the, the heavy demands, the thou shalts and thou shalt nots, and the that's wrong and that's right, and the church discipline and all of those things. And, and they say this, these people, they're, they're too rigid, legalistic, they're hypocritical, they're all these sorts of things, you understand? And we sometimes wrestle with that too. We wonder why, why do we constantly have to hear about our sin and why do we constantly have to remind it of the fact that we need Jesus Christ since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? That's how the Catechism puts it, and that's a question I think we all struggle with. And we struggle with it because it's not fun, and it's not appealing, and it's not nice to constantly be reminded, is it, that we are a people in need, that we are a people who are weak, that we're a people who are stumbling. We want to hear better things. We want to hear good things. We want to be encouraged. We want to be pumped up. We want to be excited. We don't want to be reminded of where we've fallen and how the residue, the echo, and the familiar patterns of sin remain. They do, don't they? The, the, the spiritual uh, comfort food of our lives. Your comfort food, of course, right? It's that thing that you go back to. It's the thing that reminds you of your youth. The thing that reminds you of sitting at mom and dad's table and eating that food, it's, it's so good. What did, sin is a lot of times that, isn't it? It's a lot of times that. We know it's probably not good for us, but man, it makes us feel good, doesn't it? And that's, and that's why we, we're constantly tempted to return to the patterns of thinking, to the attitudes and activities we're constantly having to fight against. If we commit, for example, in this, in this week, if we are somebody who in this past week have used language inappropriately, if we've used uh, foul language, foul words, now commit today to living this week never once saying a foul word. You'll find yourself having a hard time. You'll find yourself being challenged. It'll come out so easily and 
so freely. Why? Because it is the familiar ruts of our lives. It is the patterns that we're used to. It's the things that we think are okay. But the Lord comes to us and He says, that's wrong. And I want you to repent of that. And I want you to flee to Jesus Christ. Really, that's what He wants us to do, doesn't it? He wants us to leave those ways of sin. He wants us to leave those ways of disobedience. He wants us to leave those ways of misery and of sorrow and of grief. And He wants us instead to come into the light and into the mercy of His Son, Jesus Christ. When the Catechism says that we are to seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness of Christ, it says that we should do that precisely because it knows, the authors of the Catechism know, that that's what we'll receive when we flee to the grace of our God in Jesus Christ. When we humble ourselves, when we acknowledge our need, then we will be lifted up. That's the promise of God in His Word. He gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. And when we come to Jesus Christ, we will find from Him a blessing we couldn't find anywhere else. We will find a peace that passes understanding. We will find a joy and a strength that no other thing can provide. And that certainly sin doesn't. Sometimes we, we persist in our sin. Sometimes we think that our sin is the thing that's going to make us happy. And so maybe we hide it. Maybe we even lie to mom and dad about it. Mom and dad have told us, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the next thing. I think particularly in this particular day and age about the use of marijuana, which is becoming increasingly common even within our church community. And mom and dad are saying, no, don't do that, that's bad. And Jesus Christ is saying to you, no, don't do that, that's bad. And so what do we do? We say, well, you don't realize that it is actually good. It actually makes me happier. It actually makes my life easier. And so we hide it. We we put it in a quiet place. We separate ourselves from dad and mom. We are dishonest to them and that dishonesty leads to greater dishonesty and, and suddenly we find ourselves having to live these two lives, this one pretend pious one and this very real disobedient one and our conscience begins to be grieved and to be torn apart and we start to struggle with guilt and shame and so then we have to pursue more this desire that the world gives to us. We tell ourselves that if we even smoke some more or even if we do some more things, then we'll be okay. Sin is always that way. Sin is always asking you to go a little further, a little further, and if you just make it a little further, you'll find the happiness. You get a little further and then you'll be con- a little further and you'll, it's always a little further. The Catechism knows as the Word of God itself proclaims so very clearly to, to us that when you turn to Jesus Christ, you won't have to go anywhere. He comes to you. And He pours into your heart that grace and blessing of forgiveness and mercy and peace. The Catechism knows that you will get what you desire when you cry out to God in mercy. Now that's already a good enough reason to have the Word of God and the law of God preached pointedly to us because When we come into church on a Sunday morning, we may come in twisted up and backwards and upside down, but when we hear God condemning our sin and calling us to repentance in Jesus Christ, and when we accept that call, we find ourselves straightened out and made whole and at peace. The Catechism knows, even though sin and the devil of the world and our own flesh want to deny, the Catechism knows that when you answer the call, the Lord comes 
and blesses. But the Lord's also begun a good work in you. That's what the Catechism concludes with, doesn't it? So that we may never stop striving and may never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. See, the believer is headed somewhere really good. And it's a place full of peace and joy and blessing and a place without any sorrow or grief. It is a place in which only perfection dwells. And if that's where we're going, then how about we use today to get ready for it? That's what this is about, isn't it? That's what the Lord is doing in us. He's preparing us for an eternal comfort and joy. That's what makes this call to righteousness inspiring rather than discouraging. It's inspiring precisely because we know that we will arrive at our heart's desire. That every time we climb out of that pit of sin again, that's not a wasted effort. Better days are ahead. You are going to somewhere great. And not just a better world or better people to live with or better circumstances that are surrounding us. No, you're going to be a better you. The Lord is working in you daily and persistently and persuasively. So that every day when you get up and you say, I'm going to strive for perfection, you can be absolutely certain of this. Your effort is not wasted. It will be rewarded. You will achieve your heart's desire. That's where you're going. A lot of what our hearts desire will not be achieved. A lot of what we think is important will not be fulfilled. A lot of the paths we walk on thinking that at the end of them we will find the pot of gold will turn out to be for us a disappointment, but this one will never be. When you set your heart upon living for the Lord, when you desire to dedicate your life to praising Him, you will forever and always have meaning and hope and purpose and joy, and you will arrive one day at the end having lost everything else, but having gained the world. You see, that's what the Tenth Commandment gives to us. It gives to us a promise. A promise that can only be fulfilled in Jesus Christ and by faith in Him through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But it says to us, do you see the problem is you? The problem is the desires and the wants and the lusts of your heart. The problem is you're not perfect. And that grieves us as it ought. But it's precisely for that reason that Jesus Christ came and poured out His Holy Spirit upon our lives so that we would no longer, one day, one day, we will no longer be who Paul says we are in Romans 7. One day we will not have to say, the evil that I do not want to do, that I do, and the good that I want to do, I do not do. No, we will only say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so set your heart on perfection. Set your heart on living for the Lord. The world teaches us that we can achieve great things when we have a good goal. Well, here's the best goal of all. The praise of God's name. For when you live it, you will achieve it. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given to us hope in Jesus Christ, a Savior who is greater than just forgiving, but also sanctifying renewing and enabling. Help us to be humble. Help us to be honest. 
Help us to acknowledge our need of this Savior. Help us not to deny, Lord, but to instead depend upon Him. And help us to, in this coming week, strive for perfection. We know we're going to get nowhere close to perfection. Not this week. But Lord, help us to see that every effort, every fight against sin, every prayer of repentance, every humble acknowledgement of wrongdoing, it's all worth it. For it all brings us that much closer to the end. To our heart's desire. Perfection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.